As Jen mentioned earlier, Charles Darwin was born 212 years ago this coming Friday on February 12th, 1809. And in recent years, his birthday has been celebrated as International Darwin Day, an opportunity to celebrate the principles that guided his life. Perpetual curiosity, scientific thinking, and a hunger for truth. These values resonate with our UU fourth principle, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and our fifth source of reason and the results of science. A related tragedy of the still ongoing creation versus evolution debate is that coming to terms with Darwin's theories of natural selection and common descent those were among the greatest intellectual challenges of the 19th century. But we're not in the 19th century anymore. We're now well into the 21st century, long past the point at which the basic tenets of evolution have become settled science. And one reason it's significant to celebrate Darwin Day annually in Unitarian Universalist congregations is that both sides of Darwin's family were largely Unitarian. And while it's true there were other influences, Darwin was baptized in the Anglican church, he attended an Anglican boarding school, he was married by an Anglican priest. It's also the case that growing up, both Charles and his siblings attended the Unitarian chapel with their mother, and that the liturgy used in his wedding to Emma Wedgwood was adapted to, quote, suit the Unitarians. We are, we are fond of adapting things uh, we use. And some of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears were also among the earliest religious leaders to embrace the paradigm-shifting implications of Darwin's discoveries that we humans are not a little lower than the angels. We are instead, as uh, Nicole's wonderful story earlier, Grandmother uh, Fish, was um, showing, we humans are a little higher than the apes with whom we share a common ancestor. We now know in the wake of the Human Genome Project that at the DNA level, there is a 1.23% difference, a 1.23% difference between humans and chimpanzees. We humans are not uniquely special creations. We are only one among many species within the animal kingdom, deeply interconnected with the other forms of life and varied ecosystems on this planet. As our UU seventh principle affirms, our invitation is to wake up to that reality and to have respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we humans are a part. Along those lines, Darwin's favorite metaphor for experiencing ourselves as interdependent with other beings and ecological environments on this planet was the tree of life as all, the, all those cousins in Nicole's story that she was talking about. Let me share my screen with you to say a little bit more about all of that. The only illustration, there was just one in the first edition of Darwin's 1859 book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. And that sole illustration was of a tree-like graphic with uh, species branching up and out over time. Similarly, one sign of Darwin's breakthrough discovery came a little more than two decades earlier in 1822, when we find an early sketch in his notebook of the tree of life with the words, I think, in the upper left-hand corner is him beginning to work out his hypothesis. 
Here's a more dynamic 21st century version of the tree of life expanding in all directions. But it's based on that same Darwinian insight um, from more than 150 years ago that all life on this planet began with simpler life forms only to evolve into increasingly complex variations. After Darwin, we know that all living beings, including we human beings, are related due to our evolution from a common ancestor at the root of the tree of life, what is called common descent. So regarding our UU fifth source that I mentioned earlier and you know, taking account of all of this, so our UU fifth source, fifth source is reason and the results of science. And some of you grew up in homes that were pro-science and learned an evolutionary view of the universe from an early age. Others of you may have grown up in homes that didn't really think much about science one way or the other. Still others of you, like me, may have grown up in you know, religious congregations that practice various levels of hostility towards science. Indeed, if it's not too flippant to say so, the hard and honest truth is that a lot of the theology I was raised with was brought to you by the same folks that brought us the Scopes Monkey Trial, uh, that 1925 legal case that sought to prosecute a high school science teacher for teaching about evolution. This trial was a major flashpoint in the struggle between fundamentalist religion, which often emphasizes faith and tradition as more important than modern science, and modernist religion, which seeks to reinterpret religious claims in light of scientific discoveries. Here's the thing. Although I was raised around folks who literally sometimes, honestly, I heard them say dismissively, don't tell me I'm descended from a monkey, the more I learned over the years about the actual science of evolution, the more intriguing and really beautiful I found it. As it turns out, this same paradigm shift is wonderfully encapsulated in Darwin's own experience, which he writes about movingly in the final paragraph of his 1859 book on the origin of species. And whereas many scientific texts, I think again, it's just true to say so are not well written. They tend to be like a lot of passive boys, pretty dry. We could use more science people who are also like conversant in the humanities. Uh, that being said, there's some wonderful exceptions to that rule. And, uh, and many scientific texts also become pretty obsolete after new discoveries are made over time. Darwin's books, in contrast, have been widely praised for both the beauty of their prose and for being well worth revisiting because they are so grounded in close observations of the natural world. Many aspects have not become obsolete even more than a century and a half later. So I invite you to consider anew these final words from the conclusion to origin. Note that Darwin begins by naming aspects of life that we often perceive as solely negative, and here's where his genius comes in. He then highlights how those difficult parts of reality are nevertheless essential to the engine of evolution that he was inviting us to perceive. So let me share my screen with you again uh, to make that quote maybe more uh, easy to track. Darwin said, this is the end of his book on the origin of species. He said that from the war of nature, that doesn't sound great. From famine and death, that doesn't sound too great either. But from those things, you know, Tennyson, nature red in tooth and claw, right? From those things, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving 
the production of higher animals directly follows. He then adds that famous line, there is a grandeur in this view of life. And that's such a contrast to the sort of dismissive Scopes monkey trial stuff of I'm not descended from monkeys. Instead saying, that's actually good news. We're related. We're all part of this one family and part of this tree of life. There is a grandeur in this view of life. And whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, he concludes from so simple a beginning, you know, those simple prokaryotic cells, from so simple a beginning, the Big Bang, as we heard about in the intro, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been in our being evolved. Now, I often end my annual Darwin Day sermon with that quote. For our purposes, however, it may be helpful to zoom out just slightly from that opening final paragraph, which includes another um, compelling and beautifully crafted sentence that highlights the deep truth of our interdependence with um, all parts of the tree of life. So I'm getting a note that some of you are not seeing the slide. So I'm going to stop the share and try that again. Technology is great, except when it doesn't work. So I'm going to try this again, and it's either going to work or it's not going to work. We'll see what happens. Okay, good. So uh, uh, here's that second quote that's from the beginning of the final paragraph of uh, Origin. It is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes and various insects flitting about and with worms crawling through the damp earth. And to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and so dependent upon each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. And it's those laws that, that Darwin is wanting us to see. Along those lines, I've been reflecting on what might be most relevant for us to spend some time considering this morning regarding these major Darwinian themes of interdependence, as well as perpetual curiosity and scientific thinking and hunger for truth. And what came to mind was the pandemic as one of the most potentially obvious things for us to consider. The novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 maybe you've heard of it, is of course itself a product of evolution that's continuing to evolve, right? We're hearing about all these variants. It has given us a shocking and disturbing reminder of our deep interdependence and interconnection, both with one another and with all beings and ecosystems on this planet. And in the coming months, the percentage of our human species willing to trust science will be a major test of how well we are able to make it through the end of this pandemic. I've been pleased to see, you know, this kind of rolling in, um, notice in the chat of many of you beginning to get vaccinated. I, I celebrate that. That being said, it's disheartening and just demoralizing to read headlines such as this one from the Washington Post earlier this month. Wisconsin pharmacist who destroyed more than 500 vaccine doses believes that the earth is flat. No. Or at the end of, I laugh because I, I can only laugh or cry. At the end of last month to hear on national public radio that about 50 vaccination opponents and right-wing supporters of um, President Donald Trump and his big lie about the election delayed COVID-19 vaccinations when they protested at the entrance to Dodger Stadium, the site of a mass vaccination campaign. 
The Washington Post also highlighted in late January that large majorities of this region, DC Metro, uh, of the nursing home workers have declined the coronavirus vaccine, fueled by misinformation and mistrust. Employees have opted out. And that's begin. this article talks about how that's beginning to change. You can see uh, a nursing home worker getting vaccinated, uh, you know, and helping publicize that in that photo. But how did we get to this point? Part of the blame is an intentional spread of what's called disinformation with a D. You know, it's like intentional misinformation, fanning the flames of conspiracy thinking. And we get, according to an NPR Ipsos poll in December, about 40% of the American public believes that the coronavirus was intentionally created in a lab in China. 17% believe a false QAnon conspiracy theory that politics and the media are controlled by a, quote, group of Satan-worshipping elites who run a child sex ring, often ignoring the actual people who are running child sex rings and not doing enough about that. Uh, 37% said they don't know whether one is true or not. Sort of this inability to, I don't know, how, how would I even figure that out? Other parts of the blame are due to historic failings on the part of scientists. Since we're in Black History Month, I'm reminded of the Tuskegee experiments when the U.S. Public Service, Public Health Service and Centers for Disease Control, uh, the CDC, conducted unethical experiments on African-American men for a 40-year period from 1932 to 1972, directly causing the death of more than 100 people and causing misery and more. That was only 50 years ago. That's well within living memory. So that's one reason that transparency and ethical conduct are so vital in science to maintain public trust. And I've been grateful to see a high level of transparency regarding how these successful COVID uh, vaccinations have been produced. There are also um, further hopeful signs of the tide starting to turn back toward greater public trust in science. Things like last month, President Biden announcing he was elevating the director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to a cabinet-level position. To say more about how can we skillfully respond to these um, widespread conspiracy theories and disinformation, I've actually preached a whole sermon about this a few years ago uh, on what to do when you encounter someone who disputes the basic facts of the situation. That sermon, along with most of my previous sermons, is in our sermon archive. If you click on the communications link on our homepage or go to frederickuu.org sermons, you can find that or email me. I can send you the direct link. Uh, I can't go fully into that again right now, but I'm going to give you the five-minute version. (laughs) I'm going to give you the highlights right now. Whenever I find myself in a situation in which there seems to be a lack of shared reality, that's a really important thing to be aware of. We're not sharing. If if I'm lacking a shared reality with my interlocutor, that's an important thing to notice. And when that happens, for me, one book that often comes to mind is titled The Cynic and the Fool. It's by Tad DeLay. He's a scholar that writes at the intersection of psychoanalysis, philosophy, and theology. He's doing really interesting work. DeLay's work is an important reminder that if we can't agree on the facts, how we proceed will sometimes be dependent on what is going on underneath our disagreement. To use DeLay's somewhat harsh categories, it really matters whether the facts in dispute are in dispute because we're engaged with a misinformed but honest fool, or whether we're dealing with a nihilistic cynic, 
uh, who doesn't care about the truth, but is only saying or doing whatever it takes to spin doctor perception and amass power at any cost. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, I'm glad to send you some headlines of many politicians doing just that. So when I find myself encountering Orwellian doublespeak, I remind myself periodically of the Philip K. Dick line that reality is what doesn't go away when you stop believing in it. There's no such thing really as an alternative fact. A fact is something that is in indisputably the case if you're dealing with good faith actors. And as we saw with the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol, as we've seen with people spreading lies about the coronavirus pandemic, there can be massive consequences for one or more parties when reality catches up with the propaganda, either in the short term or long term. We could trace similar dynamics around climate change denial and the terrible consequences for our planet and for us. In the meantime, arguing with someone operating in bad faith can be exhausting at best and deeply harmful at worst. So having named some of what we're up against, I wanna give you three ways of increasing your odds of changing someone's mind. Here's a few strategies. First, make sure everyone involved is relaxed and well-rested. Do you know the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, or you could substitute stressed or tired? If any of that is the case, you need to halt, you need to stop and attend to those unmet physical or emotional needs. Otherwise, a lot of them are just gonna really decrease the capacity of anyone um, being able to engage in fruitful dialogue. A second way after dealing with anyone who's hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, a second way of increasing your odds of having a productive dialogue is to ask the other person if they'd be willing to try the following experiment with you. Both of you go to a quiet place where you're relatively free from stress or distraction and write down what you know about the arguments on the other side of your respective beliefs. And also write down what it would take, what evidence would actually change your mind. This practice can potentially expose one of two things for either or both of you. That potentially there's nothing that could change either or both of your mind. It's, it's what science calls a lack of falsifiability. There's nothing that would falsify what you believe. In which case, maybe you should just stop talking about the subject at hand and just admit we have irreconcilable differences about this. Um, or two, you may identify the data that would be most likely to convince either or both of you. And then you can go out and identify that data and, and maybe you'll logically find some minds changing. The third technique is a little more complex. It's called motivational interviewing. And I'm gonna use um, the example of early childhood vaccinations, the sort of climate change denial of the left uh, that, uh, as, that but ha has direct parallels to COVID vaccinations. If a parent tells you that they think vaccines are dangerous and that they're thinking of not getting their children vaccinated, the best first thing to say to this statement is not, that's not true. There's no evidence that vaccines are dangerous. That backfires, you're gonna put yourself in a shoot the messenger situation. The person is likely to become defensive, angry, and more deeply entrenched in their current viewpoint. A better perspective is to gently prod the person to exploring their feelings further by saying something to the effect of, could you tell me more? 
you know, just tell me a little more about how you came to think what you think. How did you come to feel nervous about vaccines? You can then guide the person through a sl slowed down, less threatening, articulated version of their thought process in getting to the conclusion that, quote, vaccines are dangerous or whatever in their words. And along the way, get them to express what is likely their main desire. And that's not being anti-vaccine, but being pro-healthy children, you know, wanting to keep their children safe. And so it's a, that's the turning point. Identifying the underlying value or desire is the key turning point in motivational interviewing. You're trying to find that deep motivation, keeping my children healthy, safe, and protected that's beneath that surface fear about vaccines. So after prioritizing deep listening over initially disputing facts, you can uh, uh, eventually ask questions that highlight angles this person may not have considered. You might ask, do you know how many children who are vaccinated who uh, are also diagnosed with autism in a, uh, within the year? Or I wonder how many children who are not vaccinated still get autism? And what are the dangers of not vaccinating your child? So you're know, kind of taking, what are you exposing them to? Measles, you know, rubella. There's a lot more to say about all this, but I hope I've given you some tools for moving forward, depending on whether you're dealing with a person acting in good faith, sincere, but misinformed. I've even heard people coming to compromise positions, like they're gonna still get vaccinated, but space them out a little bit further, that you know, can be a kind of a middle ground that uh, can be a lot better for everyone instead of totally not vaccinating. So are you dealing with a person who's good faith, sincere, but misinformed, or a bad faith actor who's a con man, a charlatan, a snake oil salesman? Here's the thing. Science can't help us with everything. There are some parts of life that are spookier, weirder, and not easily replicable in laboratory conditions. But as Darwin and so many other brilliant scientists have showed us through the ages, we should do everything we can to pay attention and to respect the areas of life that science can help us with, that it deeply illuminates. It is science, after all, that's making it possible right now in this moment to be connected in real time on a video conference against vast distances. It's like we're on an episode of Star Trek, people. The future is here. It's happening. That's not just my opinion that we're doing that. It's a fact. We're on a video conference. Science made this possible. So we need to listen and change our behavior when a strong consensus of scientists shows us evidence in a clear, compelling, transparent way about how we can mitigate the worst effects of climate change or about the effectiveness and safety of vaccines and more. We are living through a time of deep polarization and there are ways that science can help shift our perspective if we're willing to let it. I'll move toward my conclusion with one of the most powerful examples of this truth. More than 50 years ago on Christmas Eve, 1968, three astronauts, the crew of Apollo 8, became the first human beings to leave Earth's orbit. They were able to take the first photo of our planet from space, titled Earthrise. It's not a coincidence that 15 months later, the first Earth Day was celebrated in April of 1970. That first visual image of Earth from space helped further catalyze the burgeoning environmental movement. movement. Science can catalytically shift our worldview if we let it. 
along those lines, my single favorite quote from an astronaut comes from Edgar Mitchell on uh, Apollo 14. He said that from the point of view of space, you develop an instant global consciousness, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, he said, international politics just looks so petty, much less our domestic politics here in the U.S. He says you want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck, drag him a quarter million miles out and say, look at that, you bleep. I'm, I'm bleeping out that word that he used uh, in case we have some little ears listening to this um, Zoom Sunday service. Now, I'll readily admit that I can sometimes get lost in those petty squabbles that Mitchell criticizes, but I'm always grateful for reminders such as Earthrise that point me back to the bigger picture, developing a global consciousness, cultivating a cosmic awareness of deep time and big history, our place in this 13.7 billion year old universe story among more than 2 trillion galaxies. That cosmic perspective can be one of the most important and powerful tools in working toward our UU6 principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some or only an elite few, but peace, liberty, and justice for all. In that spirit, on this Darwin Sunday with our heart, our mind, our spirit open to the cosmic truths that science continues to reveal to us. Let's sing together, Blue Boat Home.